Using strong passwords, recognizing and reporting phishing, updating your security software and enabling multi-factor authentication. We are all familiar with the four tenets of staying cyber secure. But how do you keep your data safe in a future where supercomputers will be able to break any existing encryption in a matter of seconds? I am Herman Young, Investec's Global Chief Information Security Officer and Head of Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. I travelled to Israel to speak to the world-leading cybersecurity entrepreneur and expert Ruven Aronashvili. You are listening to Investec Focus Radio Essay, and in this Focus Talk, we speak about everything from the threat of quantum computing to biometric hacking, brain implants, the internet kill switch, and cyber warfare. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to Investec Focus Talks. We are in Arzlia in Israel at the SAI offices. Um, I think it's an interesting setting, you know, uh, especially in terms of the, the topic we're about to discuss. Israel is not, uh, they are quite familiar with conflict, physical and in the cyber world, right? So uh, I thought it was really, it's really a good opportunity to, to have a discussion. Ruben, welcome. By way of introduction, I'm Herman Young. I look after information and cybersecurity for Investec. Ruben is the CEO of a company called Sci. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself um, and, and about Sci, the company, what do you do? Of course. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Ruben Onoshvili. I'm uh, the founder and the CEO of Sci Security. Uh, started my professional career in the Israeli Army as part of an academic excellence program. Uh, in this program, I've done my B-Science and M-Science degree in computer science and math. It was in Tel Aviv University. Then I joined the Army and had uh, been quite fortunate to joining uh, the Cybersecurity Unit, in which uh, I uh, was part of the founding team of Section 21. This is the Israeli Red Team. It was great seven years of service, and then I decided to continue to a more civilian career path. I founded SAI in 2012, um, and since then working globally. Inside, we provide a very wide service portfolio and product portfolio for our customers, uh, starting from um, red teaming and penetration testing to identify the technical risk, then quantifying the risk for the business, and in the end, um, optimizing the cybersecurity investment and the efficiency of cybersecurity budget in the organization. And one of our maybe major Incoming data stream is incident response service that we provide in which we meet multiple ways of attacks that are actually happening in organizations. We are working with organizations first to contain the situation and then to explore, identify where this incident came from and above all, what is the damage and how we go back to regular business in this organization. Yeah, I think that's critically important. I mean, you're not just coming from the attacker's perspective, you have the defender's perspective too, right. because you're dealing with the incidents, right? Which gives you insight into, into how these organizations respond, I guess, what their weaknesses are, which we'll get to a bit later. How um, difficult is it, it is to be on the defending on side? On the defender right? side. Because, yeah, the, yeah. you know, as an attacker, you always need to find a single route or several routes that will take you in. As a defender, you have to get a full view of the organization, and that's significantly harder to do. Mm -hmm. What do you think the future holds for, like, what are the future threats? Have you, do you think about stuff that's coming down the line? I mean, there's human-computer interfaces, right, right, where there'll be implants in your body that'll make you be able to interface with the computer. I mean, surely people will be worried that there's risk there, right? So does the cybersecurity team of the future protect staff against those type of things? I think that the problem that we have in the industry is that the business and the ideas and the innovation is always 
faster than the cybersecurity capabilities yeah. to be built. I, I would always envision that in the future, things will be together, security by design. That means you don't plan the next chip that will be planted in your brain before you make sure that the cybersecurity capabilities are there. And, you know, the problem with human uh, interfaces, right, or with the body kind of uh, um, interfaces is what about the reverse interface? Let's yes. assume that you you, compu- you you communicate with your computer. That's nice, right? But what about the reverse channel? Some Something that can communicate with your brain. Well, what exactly. Is, if, 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 surely that can then implant a memory into your brain. Right. Because if you talk about virtual reality and fully immersive virtual reality. I mean, uh, so, so we, had a, we had a discussion the other day about, um, I don't really like the term metaverse because there's multiple metaverses, but it's really virtual reality, right? right. And then someone was saying, oh, but I don't want to sit with goggles on my face the whole day. Mm-hmm. And it's true, initially it will be goggles, right? And then it'll probably be glasses and it'll be contact lenses and eventually it'll be a brain interface. Right. So if it's fully immersive, meaning that your brain can't distinguish the difference between reality and the virtual reality, then you could just implant a memory or implant a thought and because I mean, the, the interface will be so close that there's that risk, right? And right. that's why I'm thinking does security of the future worry about that type of thing? So I, I think that, you know, the, the industry is really uh, excited about the innovation of this interface and the cybersecurity um, considerations. I don't think that they are taking very seriously at the yes, moment. And that's, yes. that's very concerning, of yeah, course. Yeah. But you know, even before that, there are multiple things that will be concerning even much, much earlier. Think about all the authentication mechanisms that you have today, right? You touch your finger on your just smartphone and that's it, you can pay, right? Your credit card is there, uh, Apple Pay and Google Pay. Uh, you, you have all your personal information there, everything is there. And the only thing that you need is like being able to convince the machine that you know, this is the um, biometric yes, uh, yes. capabilities yourself. So biometric uh, um, entropy, right? Something that is similar to encryption today, like RSA encryption. But what happens with quantum computing at that time that you are able to try quite a lot of uh, um, manipulations on the biometric uh, um, entropy, and then you are able to break it as you are able to break uh, any kind of encryption. That's something that is not even being discussed in the, uh, in, yes, the, yes. in, the in the overall media or in the cybersecurity uh, landscape. Because again, uh, biometric kind of uh, uh, protection is considered to be very complex, but it's not, right? It's the same entropy as you can see in RSA and something similar, right? So uh, that will be a problem much earlier because you know, uh, face recognition and uh, uh, fingerprint today is really your identity. Uh, the world is going to passwordless concept, right? You don't want to use passwords anymore. And your phone, your uh, mobile device becoming becoming your identity. Someone has your phone and it's open. It has your identity. That's mm, very simple. Mm, mm. Think about the number of things that you can do with that. Sign contracts uh, in, uh, in a different uh, DocuSign kind of capabilities. Communicate with your bank. Uh, wire transfer money, pay for someone. Everything is from your mobile device. With, with Face ID or your fingerprint as the authentication mechanism. The only one. Yes, you don't need anything it. else. Because you right. want to make it as, as easy to use as possible. Right. right. And therefore, we only take one, one of those. In the background, there's lots of complicated stuff happening, right. but the, the way to unlock it is your face or your, exactly. or your fingerprint. And if you are able to convince the phone that it's this you. is you, yeah. 
That's but that brings up a great point. You just uh, you just uh, reminded me. So, I mean, yeah, people say, oh, but usernames and passwords, you know, it's so old school and it's so painful. It is. But if it's compromised, you can change your password. Exactly. But what if your biometric data is compromised? So let's say someone publishes all your biometric data, your face ID profile and your fingerprint to the internet for the rest of the world to see. Can you change that? You can try. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you've so, seen the, the, so, uh, the movie Face Off. Yeah, we haven't. So we haven't. I haven't. We haven't seen those attacks. But what if they don't? We've seen those. Oh, really? So where you get like a biometric data compromised? When we were in the army, that was one of the things that we've dealt with quite heavily. Because you know, in Israel, there is a huge debate regarding biometric data, whether you need biometric passport and biometric, um, um, you know, ID, and that's something that is not solved in Israel. But I can tell you that the risk. As you mentioned, the problem with the risk is this, this is a one-time risk, how we call it in the army. Mm. Once compromised, there is no way back. That's a great, yeah, that's a great saying. Um, and that's that's a problem that you cannot allow yourself to try and see what happens. Because, yes. you know, as you mentioned, password, okay, it's hacked, it's breached, I know that, I'll replace it, right? I add another factor. Yes. But fingerprinting, that's something that you won't be able to change. Yes. And of course, your face recognition, that's that, something that is much harder than that. Yeah. And anything... Else in the future, you know, we had uh, different crazy things, you know, in, in a nation kind of environment. You try things like uh, blood uh, identification and so on. All of those are unique. Once compromised, there's no way back. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that, that's scary. That's very scary, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's, a physical, there's a physical risk there too, because all I need to do is just take your phone from your pocket and then hold it, hold it to your face and then it, it unlocks everything. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even so. if, you, if you are under pressure, someone puts a gun to your head, you don't need to just spill your password. You can just take the phone, put it to your face and that's it. Yeah, right? so I think yeah. people underestimate that. With your crypto wallet, your bank apps, everything on your everything phone just there. unlocked there. So there's a, it's something to consider. Definitely. So that, that talks about opportunity, right? So there's lots of technologies like homomorphic encryption that, that has been there for many, many years, but it, it hasn't been like, you know, really viable in terms of uh, implementation. The idea being that you can encrypt your data, you can send it to someone else, they can do analytics and work on that data in an encrypted way. And then the dream is that if you, let's say you send your data to a Facebook, for example, and you don't want to be part of Facebook anymore, you, you, you decide to revoke. Yeah. yeah, you revoke your keys and they lose access to that data. Like that is the utopia of, of privacy in future, right? I've heard a lot about initiatives to do that. But there are multiple obstacles to, yes. to that, right? Uh, the implementations that I've seen today for that is like a trusted third party that is able to open the data and they do the analysis for you. So you bring two parties to a third party. This one wants the analysis, this one brings the data, and then you trust the third party to allow, to allow this, um, this calculation. But there is a, a, now a new third party with interest that can see your data and now you need to be concerned maybe not about this party, but the one in the now middle. You have to concern right. about two parties instead right. of just one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. That's really a dream uh, for internet privacy, but I don't see that happening, honestly, anytime soon. You spoke about a bit of, uh, about third-party risk and um, supply chain risk previously. I mean, right. a big issue for us is that, um, well, for, as an industry, is that we use third parties. We send the data there. We have to, by law, right. like these credit bureaus that, that often gets compromised, like in South Africa, there was a case recently. And um, so this could solve that 
if we send the data there and we can revoke the keys if we suspect a breach, that'll be brilliant. Um, right. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things there that that maybe future technologies can solve. It's not just it's not just doom and gloom. There may be some opportunities there. Yeah, we, we are not there yet, but I think that uh, I heard a lot of startups going this direction, yeah. trying to to talk about the uh, privacy or next privacy capabilities uh, in the future. But keep in mind that uh, for every encryption mechanism, as you just mentioned, that were very strong 10 or 15 years ago, now are considered to be completely broken, right? So with time, any kind of encryption mechanism will yeah, be broken, right. right? And uh, we look at the future type of computation, that uh, computation that will change completely the, the way that we, do, uh, that we do encryption. But with every kind of encryption, you get also the capabilities um, to prove why it's mathematically proved for the future based on the given power of computers, right? So that's that's the only um, the, the only way to, to think about it. You always calculate, given the current capabilities, how much time it will take you to break the, the yes, algorithm, right? Yes. And that's the way uh, that um, that we work. But coming to privacy and homomorphic uh, uh, encryption, that's uh, still a dream to be to be proven. So there's massive opportunities for for um, quantum computing to solve a lot of our problems, but there's also a risk there, right? The risk is immediate, right? Things that were considered to be unbreakable in the past will be easily breakable yeah. with quantum computing. But once you take that into consideration, right, and you update your encryption mechanisms, you'll get to the same status quo, right? Yes, uh, you, so you basically would, you have to have quantum resistant encryption, exactly. right? So, but, but the way I understand it, if quantum was production ready today, it could just break all the encryption we have today, the, the, standard, the standard encryption ciphers. Most of them quite easily. Um, cryptocurrency would be at risk too. I mean, in theory, that's just uh, it's public and private keys, right? So concept, if it could, right? uh, if it could, if a quantum computer can guess your private key for your Bitcoin wallet. Or calculate it, right? Or calculate it. It can just retrieve your, yeah. it can just retrieve your cryptocurrency. For sure, because, you know, in the end, you know, take something like uh, uh, RSA, the algorithm, right? Um, the question is, how do you break large numbers into the basic parameters um, that uh, build it, right? To do that, you need to, to try a lot of op options, right? Today, with the given computing, it will take you hundreds of thousands of years in order to break that. But when you bring a totally different type of computing that mm, mm. shrinks the time for one week, then that's a totally different. It's all about the time that it takes you to compute. Time to right? Yeah, it'll take, it always takes time. It's just how quickly that time is. Yeah, yeah. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. Just a reminder to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please take a moment to rate us. So onto the Ukraine, Russia. I mean, this is the real, the real interesting stuff. So let me give you my view from uh, from the industry, if I could call it that. We always thought that the next war would be preceded by a cyber attack, right? It just makes sense. They, you start with a cyber attack, you bring the systems and the critical infrastructure down, and then you follow with more kinetic, traditional types of attacks. I think we we thought this was going to happen. I mean. I'm assuming Russia has all the capability in the world to do this, and yet they didn't, right? So, so it happened to some extent, right? When yeah. they started, you know, there were multiple very powerful DDoS attacks and some attacks against the government uh, in Ukraine, right? Uh, we've seen some critical services taking off, 
DNS taking off. So th there were quite significant attacks there. Was it from the government or from groups? I think, uh, or was that part of the, the challenge here? Groups that were supported by the government, uh, okay. like uh, the Conti Group and some others that uh, stated very clearly we are going to join Mother Russia yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. do that. In Ukraine, they faced a different type um, of situation as they seen resistance that they didn't, uh, in a way, anticipate uh, in the right way. So I think that overall the operation um, intense the, or intensity that they invested in, in, in the overall operation went off or down uh, significantly over time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right um, that we expected more. Yeah, so I, the, the industry expected much more. Exactly. I, I I saw some Russian government sites um, being down. Uh, they, they took themselves offline. Yeah. If you, you couldn't access them from outside of Russia, only within Russia. Mm -hmm. um, I th my sense is that they didn't want to escalate the scenario. I mean, um, there's the term attribution in our industry. Right. Attribution is our, like, can you identify the actual attacker? I think attribution is hard in cybersecurity. So I think there's a re there was a real risk that some group decides to attack, let's say, the Ukraine or Russia, mm -hmm. and the thing escalates, but actually it's not even government-sponsored, it's just some random group trying to, to help, like you say, from a... That happened a lot. Yeah. We've so, been, we've been in managing an incident in a chemical company in, uh, in Europe that was attacked by groups that, um, that looks like, uh, you know, uh, Russian groups, yeah. right? Uh, we don't know if those are Russians. As you just mentioned, the attribution looks like uh, like Russian groups. But then, you know, how do you know, right? That's, uh, that's a because very Because we've got all, the attackers also have the same tools now. Exactly. Right, so now like, and, and obviously it's very easy to impersonate coming exactly. from a specific country. Exactly. So that's quite easy. I, it's very easy for this thing to escalate out of control. If someone wants to pour more gas into the fire, that's yeah, something yeah, that they can yeah, do. Right? Yeah. So, before we get into that, I was thinking if you could give us a quick sense of attacker profiles, because I think it's important for the rest of the discussions that you have different attack profiles, and also the motivation is different. Right. Do you also believe in that attacker pyramid in terms of sophistication and likelihood? For sure. Um, you know, when you're in the army and, you know, I had experience to taking it from very nation level organization, let's say, and different, as you said, different motivation. Right there, you want to protect life, anti-terrorism, intelligence. That's one thing. Money is not an issue. Yeah. Then you go to a commercial world when you see that everything is being translated into financial terms in the end. But, you know, when you come to sophistication level, for example, you talk about nation-level attackers, it's always considered to be like in the top of the pyramid, right? But now we see that more and more of those capabilities, at least, are moving more and more to the commercial world. So mm -hmm. you see capabilities like Eternal Blue from the NSA, then one day it becomes public knowledge, and then you have, like, chaos in the world, right? Everyone is under attack, and you have, um, you know, a multiple ransomware attack. But the point is that those risky tools in the hands of less experienced yeah. uh, attackers maybe sometimes can create chaotic situation. It was nation-state capability and all of a sudden it's in the hands of, 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 of everyone. Of everyone. Yeah. So for those that don't know that uh, there, was a, there was a server that was compromised on the internet where um, 
someone found um, some nation state capability tools and then they you know they exposed that to the to the whole world so I mean, I, so i think yeah so i mean the motivation i think is in, is interesting yeah, so, so as as yeah. as we discussed right the motivation can be financial if that's in the commercial world you talk about ransomware gangs right and there are multiple of those um that are actually trying to get financial benefits yes. out of it in any way, you mentioned extortion, right, or uh, uh, the, just the ransom part, and not uh, specifically the ransomware or encryption. That's uh, the involvement of the situation coming from identifying pressure points, right, as business continuity was a pressure point. If I encrypt your environment, you will pay because you need to go back to business. But there are other pressure points. Sexual contact or, uh, content of uh, executives, something that we see huge increase in uh, this kind of extortion. Private information because of GDPR and other regulations, if you are able to get your hands on this kind of data, mm. you can, again, pressure the organization to pay you something in, uh, before you are going and, uh, you know, and uh, putting this uh, data uh, publicly available for everyone. So the motivation for financial terms is something that uh, has changed quite significantly, but now the same gangs, for example, the ransomware gangs, uh, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you've seen that they changed everything that they do from financial aspects, again, to be a more national kind of, uh, um, let's say, support to, to Russia in some cases. And they started to use wipers instead of ransomware, right? That means they just deleted the information with no way to uh, recover the information, yeah. and then they didn't ask for anything. So yeah. again, different motivation. We just want you to look bad or to stop your business. That's the point. It's not around uh, financial uh, financial uh, benefits anymore or financial gain. So motivation is a very important. I think if, uh, if organizations and people think about the motivation of these attackers, it can help them defend against it to some extent where if a nation state wants to come after you, get your information, they will keep going at it until they get that information. It's much harder to you know, defend against um, as opposed to ransomware gangs that just wants financial gain, right? So am I right in saying that? Do you agree? Like if you, if they want to monetize it, if it's financial motive, then there's a return on investment game that you're playing to say, well, if you're more secure than someone else, they will go for the, for the easier target. In the end, ransomware gangs is a business like any other business. You want to invest less and gain more, right? So if uh, we need to target a company as a ransomware gang, we need to target a company that is very hard to penetrate. And in the end, even if you are in, the financial gain that you'll get will be limited because mm. you manage to get something that is very limited. It's not a good target for you. If you invest the same resources or even less resources and you get the, uh, the big win, then it will be great for you. That's why, for example, we see one of the trends of attacking, for example, supply chain or service providers because you invest once, you get one single organization, and from this organization, you get access to hundreds of other yeah, organizations. Yeah. That's, by definition, ROI is, is uh, at the maximum at, the, at this kind of attack. I think the real, so the real question then is, what if there is a real cyber attack? Real cyber war breaks out. I mean, there's this concept of the internet kill switch that Russia, for example, have practiced. Um, I am, I'm assuming other countries have the same. So therefore, the assumption is that because they've practiced this, meaning that if they get attacked by other countries at a cyber level and the critical infrastructure starts to go down, that they may isolate themselves from the internet as a last resort to protect their critical infrastructure. 
Uh, I mean, is that a is that a correct assumption? That's like a doomsday. Hundred percent. Now to bring that back to companies and 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 uh, you know businesses, if you are hosting your some of your critical or some of your infrastructure, your services to your clients in one of those countries, they may become unavailable to right. to your clients. Which means that from a business point of view, like you know, if there's a cyber war breaks out between countries. I'm assuming there's very little we can do as a business. Just this morning, we heard about Cloudflare that are down, right? Their service is down. And hundreds of thousands of uh, sites and services are down at the same time. But the impact is so huge. Think about now the cloud service providers. Uh, Azure is down. Yeah. AWS is yeah. down. Yeah. I mean, the impact is so significant Absolutely. that everyone is going there. Yeah. And yeah. it becomes very quickly like the single point of failure, not for a single organization, for the industry. For multiple organizations. Yeah, and that's yeah. something yeah, yeah. that uh, personally I'm very concerned about. The cloud is the no no question about the efficiency and how that's good for the business. But, you know, in the, at the past, you were in a situation that your maybe um, colleagues or uh, other competitor in the market uh, uh, is being attacked. Then you know that you're in a way isolated in your data center and you are able to protect yourself. Now it's out of your hands, right? Yeah, yeah. How can you react to that? And that's, that's a very difficult problem, right? So even the most resilient organization, right? Once the critical assets are not at your control, you don't touch them physically, sometimes that's a negative thing. Yeah. Of course, there are a lot of positive things. Yeah, there's lots the of cloud, benefits, right? lots of positives, but there is risk yeah. in there too. And being able to have some kind of, um, in a way, um, backup plan, right, a contingency plan uh, to yeah. have something to go back maybe 10 years uh, back and have something working in your environment, even if it's small on low scale and so on, just to make sure that business continues uh, working, even with all the business continuity plans that we've seen and the disaster recovery plans that we see all around the world. No one is taking this kind of sen uh, scenario as a realistic one, right, yeah. because they yeah. say, hey, you know, if, if Microsoft is down, then it's the end of the game world. Over, yeah. Yeah. In yeah, any yeah. case, it's game over. That's the thing. I think as an industry for a long time, we were almost exclusively focused on the confidentiality risk, right. where people were stealing our data or stealing our money or the financial risk. Right. It seems to me more and more availability is the is the a key risk that we are right. that we should be worried about. The extortions, the you know, the, the cyber wars of the world. The business continuity aspect becoming really the leading you hear everywhere, right? We are doing a lot of uh, tabletop exercises as well. You meet with management, with board of directors, and that's always the same. What about ransomware? Are we mm. protected against ransomware? Now, ransomware is a result. This is not an attack, right? Yes. This is like the result of the attack that you are being ransomed. Oh, it's a method. It's actually a way of attacking. It's, exactly. yeah. you, can, you can use the same, let's say, attack chain and have different consequences. For example, stealing data, as you mentioned before, uh, changing data like data integrity and in the end, of course, availability, but still ransomware is the most impactful one. And the reason for that is that really is always in the news. Um, and you, you hear people suffering from how difficult it was to identify, take it out and go back to business. So 
that became really like uh, the rock star of the attacks, but it's not really an attack, it's just the impact of that. Exactly. I, I was talking to a, to a company recently that, that was ransomware, and uh, they eventually got the keys from the attackers. Uh, they were a manufacturer, and they said it took them just as long to decrypt than to restore from backups. <laughs> so they had to run the two in parallel, but it took just as long. So it's not a matter of just getting the, the keys right. from the attackers and then decrypting, because right. you're it's down for, a, for, a, for an amount of time. I mean, that brings us to the point about, mm -hmm. I guess, the defeatist attitude. Like you see in the media, ransomware all over the place. I mean, but surely from your experience, you, you never hear about the companies that successfully defended. Because you, it's not interesting. It's not interesting, right? So we always hear about the ones that were successful. I mean, and, and what I wanted to say is it's not just doom and gloom. Are there companies that you've seen that, that do have good security? And, uh, and then I guess we can touch on... Why is that? Like, why do certain companies have good security if that is the case? Uh, why do some have bad security? Because I'm assuming that, um, that the ones that you read about in the media had bad security. Am I right? Or is it, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not just a luck thing, is it? It's not a luck thing, uh, for sure. Um, but sometimes, as I mentioned before, it's really hard. It's not an easy problem to solve. There are great organizations Investec being one of them, um, honestly speaking, um, as I told you many times before, right? I think that's one of the most impressive cybersecurity infrastructure that we've seen in operation. So that's uh, really nice uh, for your customers to know as well. But other than that, I can tell you that um, take the size problem, for example, mm -hmm. size and complexity. From our point of view, the two main parameters for uh, cybersecurity weaknesses. If you talk about an organization of 250K employees, the likelihood for a mistake there mm. is very high, mm. even if they are investing a lot in cybersecurity. Mm. And that's a great organization. Still, being able to be perfect is very hard. And um, that requires continuous investment in cybersecurity and not thinking at some point, okay, we are good, now we can stop, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And that, that's an approach that we've seen quite a lot. We reached a point, we got to the 3.6 maturity level on the CMMI, like everyone likes to say, right? There's something that's considered to be like a market, um, market goal for a lot of organizations. We are there, we can stop. No, that's not the point, right? Yeah. You cannot stop in yeah. cybersecurity yeah. because the threat landscape is continuously evolving. So I don't think those are bad organizations, but definitely they, not, they are not doing something right. They don't oh, yeah, invest yeah. in the right places. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the industry also, right? If, you know, I'm, I'm assuming if you're a manufacturer and you make trailers, right? Or you, 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 they're like physically making stuff. Maybe security is not top of mind for you. You want to you turn out stuff from your factory. So I've often spoken to people and there's the IT guy that's also the security guy that like, right. you know, so, so I'm assuming, so, so therefore, I'll, like what part does culture play? For sure, because the culture drives investment, drives um, motivation of the people and Support. focus. And focus uh, yeah. support for uh, support from, from the execs. Yeah. It, exactly. it, it's a well-known thing. It's like a right. truism. Right. But until you've experienced what 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 the difference looks like from you know between support from your executives and your board versus not for no sure. support, then you can see the difference, right? For sure, I can tell you that um, there are several industries. You mentioned some industrial uh, organizations, retail, uh, fashion companies that we see that are actually by definition they invest less in cybersecurity. Mm. That's um, that's not top of mind, yeah. but once something happens, you know, and that, that's the problem. They really reactive in their approach rather than proactive, and that's something that will cost you. 
right? If uh, you are going to react after something happened, you are going to, all the money that you saved over the years on not investing yeah. in cybersecurity, yeah. you will pay at some point, yeah. right? There's no way around it. We no. have the saying in the industry, never waste a good crisis. Exactly. Because typically what happens is companies get compromised and then all of a sudden they throw all the money and, and, and the resources at it. That's a nice segue into my next point is that we call sort of broadly security as a business differentiator, right? So so obviously I'm biased, you know, we're in the security industry, right. uh, but it seems more and more in future your security posture will become a business differentiator. There's a few things in there, like this, this availability risk that we're just talking about, but also, I mean, what's your sense of, of the future in terms of privacy and trust? I mean, a, a bank ultimately deals in trust, right? And that's why you mentioned the reputation of if the execs get, uh, get, get extorted, you know, or blackmailed, why would they pay? to save the reputation of the organization. So reputation and trust becomes a big thing. So does, does, does trust in, in your bank become a differentiator in future? For sure, not, not, in, not only in your bank. I really think that uh, cybersecurity will become business differentiator in, um, in a lot of businesses, and we see that already as a trend in the industry. The reason for that is that you want to be in a situation that you know that your data that your personal information is protected to the top level possible, right? Definitely when you talk about your bank, but not only, right? If you think about medical devices, right? You, you go to a hospital, you want to make sure that you go into a city device and you won't get burn or uh, extra radiation than what you need, right? Mm. You want to make sure that your heart pacemaker is something that cannot be controlled remotely like you see in the movies, right? And again, everything that you see in the movies will become in the end reality, right? Or already is a reality. Think about airliners, think about smart cars. Each and every one of those topics, when you add the secure phrase to it, it's different already. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is a differentiator. Yeah. Imagine a world like you, you get the rating agencies like Moody's that rate a country and a business in terms of their you know, affordability and you know, the, the capability to service their debt and whatnot. And if you get like a, a published score of the security maturity of a bank as a client in future, you could say, well, you know, there's these four banks that I'm interested in. Um, actually, this one's security is, is higher than that one. And I, I mean, you would assume people will naturally go to the more secure one, right? And that's be, how it, it can be. be a parameter for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the problem that we see that uh, usually these kind of benefits come with very high price tag. Yes. And if that's balanced, then uh, cybersecurity for sure will be uh, the, the key differentiator. But that's a great point because personally, um, we all know that if you get services for free, then you typically are the product, right? <laughs> so um, the places like Facebook, you know, Google, you know, the big tech companies, the reason you get it for free is they take your data, they on-sell it, or they use it to advertise to you. So personally, uh, obviously, because of the industry I'm in, I'm very, I'm very pro-privacy. Um, and I, therefore, I think, I suspect that in future, more and more people will say, I, I will willingly give up my privacy to get this thing for free. Right. But then I think there will be lots of people that will pay a premium for the privacy. So, right. you know, you get you can either go the Gmail route for free email or you go Proton Mail where you pay for it and you you know that you, your stuff is private. Do you, right, do, you right. do you agree? I, I'm totally with you. But as you said, that's really the the vast majority maybe of uh, uh, of um, the population. They will choose the free because they don't care about their privacy. But there are several 
let's say, segments in the population that will say, hey, I prefer to pay. And I've been, I'm being one of them, as you know, I appreciate privacy mm. uh, greatly. So I, I prefer to pay and know that my data is protected rather than uh, do, that, uh, do that for free or use that for free. So that's, that's a great uh, argument. But if you have two banks that both of them, they, uh, you know, they have security on top of their mind and maybe one of them is you know, a little bit less mature on security, then pricing will be still a differentiator, yes, right? Yes, right. So, so yeah, yeah. It, it, it depends what the delta is. Right. Listen, um, I think we, we're out of time. It was great talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. I think it was really interesting. Thank you for listening to this Focus Talk. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.